Welcome to the Carnivore Cast, a podcast focused on the carnivore diet and lifestyle, with practical advice from successful carnivores, citizen scientists, and top researchers. I'm your host, Scott Meslinski, and I'm here to speak with experts and experienced carnivores to get answers to your biggest and meatiest questions while helping you live your best life as a carnivore. This episode is brought to you by The Carnivore Bar. It's an ancestrally inspired meal replacement bar with real clean ingredients. Zero carb, high fat, just meat. It's only made of beef, tallow, and salt. And for crazy carnivores who don't eat salt, you can also get them unsalted. It's shelf-stable and it's portable and convenient. These are great for long hikes, business trips, traveling, or just having an easy, ready option in your pantry. I have them at least once a week, and they're delicious. You can use CarnivoreCast, all one word, at CarnivoreBar.com to get a discount. They're the perfect combination of crunchy and creamy. And as they say on their website, well, we do not believe that honey is part of the true carnivore diet. We do support it as a wholesome food choice, especially for our animal-based and paleo dieters. I don't have an opinion on that, but uh, you can get a honey flavor too. <laughs> Check them out at CarnivoreBar.com and use code CarnivoreCast. Dr. Norm Roblard is the founder of Digestive Health Institute, a gut health expert, author, and microbiologist. He's the creator of the Fast Track Diet Fermentation Potential System and author of the Fast Track Digestion book series and publisher of the Fast Track Diet mobile app. Welcome to the show, Dr. Norm. Hey, nice to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, we conversed a bit over email um, and and you shared... um, the, the reference to the case study report um, on carnivore and SIBO, which I thought was fascinating. Um, so I definitely want to get into that. But tell me a bit about your career and how you became interested in the gut and, and where that's led you. Yeah, sure. I mean, I was in I was in pharma biotech for, for many years. That's pretty much what my career was. Um, developing drugs, working on antibiotics, working on antibiotic resistant mechanisms. I got into some mammalian biology and some cloning some antibody genes and things like that. So um, I was just cruising along, um, paying the bills and enjoying what I did in in, in science in the industry. Uh, however, I <laughs> had a persistent problem with acid reflux that developed in my 30s, uh, and it became quite chronic. And I was trying to figure out, you know, what to do. The medicines weren't really working, and I just ended up going on a low carb diet. I had really been on an eat anything diet before that. And I found that, uh, that my acid reflux pretty much cleared up on a very low carb diet. And I just got really curious about it. I ended up, uh, you know, kind of researching what is the impact of carbs? How do they fit in with this picture of this functional GI issue reflux? And I just, didn't buy what they were selling. You know, the long-standing theory was that that the problem was um, these lower esophageal sphincter muscles weren't closing well or staying closed on top of our stomach. That's why reflux happened. And I just thought this has nothing to do with carbohydrates. So I started thinking about it, reading about it, and came up with a new theory that really it's carbohydrate malabsorption that's one of the key drivers of reflux because I knew about gut microbes as a microbiologist. I'd worked on some of these intestinal microbes for years as in grad, uh, grad studies and 
uh, as a postdoc. I knew they made a lot of gas. I knew they loved carbs. And I thought, maybe I'm just not digesting carbs that well. And I'm eating so many of them. I'm getting a lot of buildup of gas. It's translating from my intestines into my stomach, and it's driving reflux, like, like dropping a Mentos in a Coke. And so um, the theory was that simple. Well, it turns out the, there's a lot of evidence and support for that theory. So I've written three books on that. I've expanded out to irritable bowel syndrome, which is, has an overlapping kind of etiology with GERD, uh, half the people with one, half the other, and vice versa. And so I really came to this conclusion that while there's a number of you know potential contributing causes for these functional GI issues, that Carbohydrate malabsorption and gas is a big driver of symptoms, not only reflux, but altered bowel habits, gas and bloating. And so it's just, it got a hold of me and I ended up dropping out of the industry and, and starting my own business um, in the Digestive Health Institute to focus on, on gut issues, the microbiome and diet. That's amazing. And um, how, how has uh, carnivore entered the picture? picture for you? Well, you know, it's, uh, I, I gave a talk out at SIBOCon a couple of years ago, and I was really uh, trying to uh, make a couple of points. First of all, that, that a diet that reduces fermentable carbohydrates, and I say fermentable because, um, you know, if you consume a lot of glucose, dextrose, it's absorbed really quickly in the early part of your digestive tract and may not cause that many problems, but more um, complex carbs or hard to digest ones like fructose, lactose, resistant starch, fiber, and sugar alcohols are, are hard to digest or impossible to digest, very fermentable, and can cause a lot of symptoms. But people were saying, you know, um, the diet really only helps the symptoms with these conditions. That's what everybody's been saying. And I said, well, well, wait a minute. You know, there's something that's got to be causing these symptoms. And so I looked, uh, you know, extensively at the literature in the fall before I went out to Seattle to give this talk. And I found a lot of papers that show that diet and, and keto and this limited data on, on carnivore, you mentioned one of those studies that we can talk about, but um, low carb, keto, there's some good examples. There's a lot of studies in IBS just because that, that condition is studied so much. And there's good evidence that these, when you reduce the fermentation by lowering these carbs, that you not only, yeah, you do improve the symptoms, but you also cause microbiota changes, uh, like this all-important firmicutes bacteroidetes ratio. That, that's two of the phyla that are most heavily represented. And they got, there's 11 of them, but those two are heavily represented. Shifts that ratio. It reduces short-chain fatty acids. It reduces the gases. Um, you know, you've got hydrogen, methane, and hydrogen sulfide. And um, so there is evidence that diet does more than symptoms. Uh, the other thing I wanted to do is debunk some uh, ideas about fiber and fiber causing all of these, you know, problems. And that, I mean, not uh, protecting you from all of these problems, protecting you from colon cancer, uh, from constipation, and uh, that if we didn't have fiber, we would starve our microorganisms in our gut. And so I spent a lot of time uh, kind of debunking those, you know, like fiber and colon cancer. I mean, that's been debunked. The Fuchs study in 1999, male health professional in 1994, uh, the Fukuoka study in 2010. Uh, so the first two were, you know, really um, uh, 
large population studies. And then the Fukuoka study was 816 people with colon cancer and 816 controls. They all concluded the same thing. There's no clear association between fiber and, and reduced risk of colorectal cancer. So, uh, you know, in the mix somewhere, I think uh, carnivore kind of creeped in because, you know, when I was, when I came up with a fast track diet, I, for that Seattle talk, I created this kind of continuum that the fast track diet is really a system that quantitatively limits fermentable carbohydrates, right? So I put this, this continuum in place. And on the one end was plant-based high fiber diets with prebiotics. That's all that fermentable material, right? Then the Western diet, it's got a lot of crap in it, but maybe a little less fermentable material. You've got the FODMAP diet, low carb, and then keto progressively cutting back on these carbohydrates. The elemental diet, as I mentioned, it's high carb, but that's glucose. That's different. And then the carnivore diet is next. And the only thing that has less fermentable material than the carnivore diet is fasting. So I guess carnivore takes the crown there <laughs> in terms of less fermentable material. Yeah. And do you think, um, why do you think there is such focus in the kind of gut health space and research, a, a lot of studies focusing on the role of fiber and the emphasis of fiber to create healthy gut bacteria? Yeah, I think it goes back to um, the, the early observations of um, who's the fiber guy there, Burkett, right? He went to Africa. They consume more fiber. He didn't notice as much colon cancer. And so he came up with this idea that mm. maybe fiber was a cure for everything. And um, so we, we talked a little bit about those three major studies that really debunked any protective role in colon cancer. Um, but several other things have persisted. This idea, and, and, and by the way, a lot of these studies that, that, that support fiber are either observational studies or done in mice. So there's a little caveat there, but they've come up with all of these ideas. And some of them were done in mouse models, some uh, like a knockout IL-10 model where it's a very inflammatory state in these mice and so forth. But um, so some of the things that came out of it, this, this uh, effort was that um, if you didn't have fiber, you would starve your gut microbes. And that's just not true on so many other levels. Um, the guys on the all-meat diet, I'd like to talk about that one for a while today. Um, they seemed fine after a year. Um, and, and there was a follow-up microbiota study on them, by the way, on these two guys, Stephenson and Anderson, and, and a third guy, um, before and after their all-meat diet. They actually analyzed their microbes, and it's an incredible study published in 1931. But here's the reason I don't believe this thing about starving the gut microbes. Um, first of all, these gut microorganisms, at, you know, somewhere between 10 and 100 trillion of them in our gut from 11 different phyla, uh, hundreds of different species, very complex. They co-evolved with us and their primary role is to prevent starvation. So how do you imagine a system that evolved to prevent starvation not being fairly robust when we're calorie deprived? So I just don't believe it from that standpoint. Also, we know a lot more about these gut mucins, this mucus that coats our digestive tract. 
Um, and it's comp comprised of some 20 different mucin molecules, highly complex. They have these uh, protein backbones, but they're um, heavily um, coated with sugar molecules, so sulfated glycoproteins, nitrogen sulfur. It's a complete food source for microbes. And it's a lock-in key mechanism. So mucin feeders like Akamensin with Cinephila, Fecalibacterium prosnitzii, some of the bacteroides, um, they know how to unlock this energy and they can cross-feed the other microbes in the gut. So there's a mechanism in place when we're fasting or when we don't supposedly get enough fiber, they, they can be fed. And um, microbes, many of them do quite well on proteins and some even with fats. Uh, so there's other sources. And then we consume a lot of fermentable material beyond fiber. You might call it animal fiber. Uh, the oligocytes and la uh, lactose and milk, collagen, chondroitin, uh, things from tendons and bones, skin, cartilage, kind of like what feeds the microbiota of a cheetah. And then lastly, this FP calculation I developed that quantitatively measures how much fermentable material is in any food. I used it to just look at a typical day on the Western diet and we're getting over a hundred grams of fermentable material each day. And, and that's above and beyond the 14 grams of fiber that we consume on average. So there's a lot of fermentable material in our diet. There's fermentable material in animal-based foods. Fats and proteins can feed the microbiota. Gut mucins can feed them. And they evolve to prevent starvation. So I, I just don't buy that one. Uh, people have also talked about reduced short-chain fatty acids. These are the end products, the fats that bacteria make. And sure, some of them are good, like butyrate feeds our colonocytes, the cells that line our colon. Um, but here's the thing. On a low-carb diet, these short-chain fatty acids that they tend to measure do go down. However, you're measuring them in a stool sample, so you're still measuring more than our body actually needed. You're measuring what we're getting rid of. And then also the Turnbaugh study, David and Turnbaugh 2013, uh, they put people on an all-meat diet for a week or a plant-based diet for a week. And they found that the people on the plant, on the all-meat diet, and it was a crossover. I think they did a washout and then switch. But on the all-meat all diet, they made more short-chain fatty acids. But instead of things like acetate and butyrate, they produced more isovalerate and isobutyrate. So there's a difference, but isobutyrate works fine for colonocytes. Interesting. Um, and what um, can you talk a little bit more about the the case report study? Um, I think it's really interesting um, about the. I think it was seven individuals um, who had SIBO who were basically put on a carnivore diet. You send me. If you're like me, carnivore has helped your digestion a lot but you may still have some lingering problems. You may have gas, bloating, may have constipation. Many people on the carnivore diet still experience some of these things. Masszymes is a supplement by Bioptimizers, which can really help. It's an enzyme that improves digestion, reduces gas and bloating, and provides relief from constipation. I take Masszymes most days with my breakfast because as our body ages, it produces fewer enzymes, so it becomes harder to quickly digest and assimilate food particularly large amounts of fat and protein like we have on a carnivore diet. 
They're offering a awesome free bundle, which includes a bottle of Masszymes, three free eBooks, and it's only available while stock lasts. You'll want to go to this exclusive link to take advantage of it. It's masszymes.com slash free. That's M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com slash free. all one word. Check out the link in the notes of this podcast or on my Instagram bio. And thanks for supporting the show. Yeah, so that um, paper is uh, still kind of in preprint form. Yeah. Um, but I did reach out to the author, a grad student in, um, where was she? Somewhere in Northern Europe. And she said that, you know, they haven't had that much time to work on it, but they, they're still trying to get it published. Um, but this, so I don't, I don't have the paper in front of me, but they yeah, looked at a small number of people. It's a case report study. Most of them had um, high hydrogen levels, right? The certain bacteria that ferment carbs and produce hydrogen. And then these archaea organisms can take that hydrogen and produce methane and sulfate-reducing bacteria can take that hydrogen and produce hydrogen sulfide. They were focused on kind of the, the hydrogen producers in the group, but there were some that, that produced methane. And what they found that, the, that these people were positive by what they call a lactulose breath test right? You blow in a tube and it measures gases and it measures hydrogen and methane. There's a new one that measures hydrogen sulfide as well. But in this case, they measure hydrogen and methane. And we know those are produced by microbes in your gut that produce them. Then they, they, um, they absorb into the bloodstream and then they're exhaled through the breath and you blow in the tube. So when you measure those, go back to the lab and measure those, you're measuring what the microbes in your gut produce because humans don't produce hydrogen or methane. And what they found is these people, right? People that have a lot of symptoms, IBS and other functional GI issues have SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and high levels of these gases. And they found that after um, being on this carnivore diet for what was it? It, Several, several weeks, it might've been closer to a month, I forget offhand, but that they, they resolved these, uh, these breath tests were negative afterwards. Yeah, I think so, it was up to six weeks. Six weeks, yeah. So um, there, you know, it's, it's a case report. Um, it's not technically published yet. It's a preprint, so it has to go through peer review. But I do think it's an early indication. It makes scientific sense that you don't have as much fermentable material in an animal-based diet. And you should expect that these microbes will be, you know, will won't grow as much. They won't produce as much um, gas. In fact, we see the same thing in um, that follow-up study. <laughs> I'm dying to talk about this Wilhelmer, Stephenson, and Anderson follow-up study. But in in the follow-up study, I'm just going to give you a little preview there. Um, they also found that the that even though all of the bacterial types and they were doing classic microbiology, some very good microbiology, but that all the types were represented, but the bacterial counts were markedly decreased by 50%. And the fermentative organisms, right? So those are sacrolytic microbes um, that ferment carbs, right? Like lactic acid bacteria, streptococcus, uh, acidophilus, bifidobacteria, and enterococcus were all depressed. And so those are the, the sacrolytic gas-producing, uh, some of those gas-producing microbes 
and they were all reduced. Now, by the way, it did come back when they went back to a quote, normal diet. Yeah, I, I found it a really interesting report, and I'll, I'll um, link that for the listeners oh, yes. to check out as well in, in the show notes. Um, you wanted to talk more about the um, Stephenson um, follow-up study? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, um, and you know the, the basic story, right? Uh, Stephenson yeah. and Anderson, and you guys probably talk about that a lot in your area. Um, you know, but I mean, Canadian explorers spent three years with the Inuit or the native people eating mostly animals, came back to the States. People didn't really believe them, right? They're like, well, what's going on? How can you live on just mostly meat? I said, yeah, that's what I did. And so they agreed to do this one-year study, meat, fish, organs, bone marrow. Um, Stephenson ate some eggs. Anderson didn't, I guess. But no milk, sugar, or starches. And, but a couple of things um, came out just in, in the original paper where they were looking at overall health and kidney function. Right. One was that Stephenson had diarrhea to begin with for two or three weeks, I believe, and corrected that by increasing fats. And in the paper, they talk about fats need to be about one and a half to one point seven five times as much as the protein to prevent the um, digestive disturbance. And that kind of caught my attention because um, it's interesting. We we tend to look at diarrhea in um, people with IBSD, diarrhea predominant IBS and so forth, and, and people eating a regular diet. And there's kind of an old adage, I don't know if you've heard this, that with diarrhea, less fats, and with constipation, more fats. Mm. So that's been yeah. a little rule of thumb. Now, this, Stephenson's case was the opposite of that, that he corrected his diarrhea by increase, by adding more fats. So I thought that was interesting that yeah. in, in on a carnivore diet, it kind of flipped that around. And then also when I work with people that have diarrhea or constipation, we look at, you know, we look at it mechanistically. So with, with diarrhea, it can be fat malabsorption. It can be bile acid malabsorption, right? Most of uh, 95% or more of the bile that we produce that helps solubilize the fats so the lipase can digest them. It's reabsorbed in the terminal small intestine before it hits the large bowel, goes back to the liver, saves a lot of energy because cholesterol is, a, is an expensive molecule, and that's kind of what bile is made of. Um, so if more than just a couple of percent of the bile is, is malabsorbed, it leads to diarrhea. And it's believed that about a third of the IBS diarrhea cases of a bile acid malabsorption. And, and also when you look at fat digestion and fat malabsorption, we have, we think of pancreatic lipase as one of the key players, but we have lipases in our stomach. We have lipases in our saliva. We have uh, fat digesting types of enzymes along the brush border with the villi and microvilli. So there is a lot that can go, long, go wrong in terms of fat digestion and bile acid, um, you know, biochemistry. Bacteria can deconjugate the bile acids. Um, causing more malabsorption and all of these problems. But I just thought that was kind of interesting that uh, that observation. And, and of course, this parallels made to things like rabbit starvation and so forth. And, you know, I don't I don't know if the foundation of that is really true, where you'd literally starve to death eating rabbits, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So there, there was um, these couple of people, John Turry and Liz Montu, they were at Cornell. And they had the foresight to say, well, let's let's evaluate the microflora 
and they did it for Stephenson and Anderson, you know, who, who were on the meat only diet for a whole year. And then there was another volunteer that went in. It was initially a ward study for 10 days was on an all meat diet. And they looked at their microbiota stool samples before the diet and after the diet. It was the first study of its kind. Um, you know, and, and you imagine back then, this study was published in 1931. So that's, what, 15 years before we even really understood what DNA was. So they weren't genetic studies. It was classic microbiology. Um, but it was really excellent microbiology. They they used differential media. They incubated the, the samples in anaerobically, aerobically, right? Recognizing that a lot of these microbes were anaerobic. They used... Um, differential selective media, indicator media, and they really, you know, type these up, quantitative the numbers of them and what types were there. So it was really quite a study. I'm I'm actually surprised I missed it. I just found it a year or so ago. And I was like, wow, they did that follow-up. Yeah. Um, I'd never heard of it. Yeah. I'll I'll put I'll give you a link. You can share it with your listeners if you want. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all meat diet, the bacterial counts dropped significantly and then returned to normal afterwards. They said there was no overgrowth of what they called putrefactive anaerobes. So those would be things that, you know, have proteolytic type organisms that break down amino acids from proteins and so forth. Um, that surprised me a little. I thought there might have been a bump up of those. Uh, they did see enhanced production of hydrogen sulfide. It's one of the gases we talked about. Um, they created by these uh, sulfate reducing bacteria like Bilophila wadsworthia. Um, a whole, there's a whole bunch of them that can produce this. Um, and what does that mean? We don't really know. It did show up in the 2013 David Turnbaugh study where they put people on an all meat or all plant-based diet for a week. The meat eaters did um, have a bump up in, in this bilophila and more hydrogen sulfide. Um, but more importantly, in that, in that study, they showed this uh, increase in these in these bacteroidetes over firmicutes in, in the meat diet and the opposite, more firmicutes over bacteroidetes in the plant-based diet, which I thought was really interesting because um, that ratio is really important because of all the 11 phyla, um, those two are by far the most representative of 90% of our microbes. And we see the same thing, high firmicutes over bacteroidetes and IBS, obesity, and epilepsy studies. And low-carb diets reverse that and address the symptoms, address obesity, address IBS symptoms, and address the symptoms of epilepsy while reverting this ratio more to um, kind of the healthy controls. And, um, and this was... Uh, yeah, this was shown in, in that one week on carnivore diet as well. So I'm not saying that plant-based diets can't be healthy for some people. And I have no problem with people if they eat that and they live a long, healthy life, that's fine. Um, however, because it shows up in obesity, epilepsy, and IBS, when people have those conditions, they should be looking at, am I consuming more plants? And are they driving this ratio um, in the wrong direction? Now, to get back to that follow-up study, the only um, point left to make was they did find an increase in a bacteria they call Bacillus welchii. And I was kind of curious about that. What is it and why, why is that higher? Um, now, through modern uh, 16 RNA, uh, 
16 RNA DNA sequencing, typing these organisms, they know that that organism is actually Clostridia perfringens. It is a normal gut inhabitant, right? It was increased in these, uh, these guys on the all-meat diet. Um, it is a potential cause of food poisoning in the small intestine, cramps, diarrhea, kind of a 24-hour thing. It's also found in raw meat sometimes, contaminated raw meat, um, and it does tend to increase with age. So that's where I left things. My next step was I really wanted to look at some of these centenarian studies to see people that live over 100. Uh, there's, there's the idea that they might have a robust and healthy microbiome, and that's why they, they're able to live so long. And I just wanted to see what the levels were there. So it is a normal gut inhabitant, and it's important to, to remember that Stephenson and Anderson were healthy for a year on that diet, but it's just kind of something to make a footnote on to, you know, do a little more work on. Yeah, that, that is um, super fascinating to hear you talk about the different bacteria. And and one thing um, that's thrown out a lot is probiotics for creating more bacteria. Can you talk about, you know, maybe where people should be educated on that and, some things to um, be careful about when just like blasting yourself with different probiotics. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, there is the idea out there that um, if you have these functional GI issues and say you, you've been diagnosed with SIBO, right? Um, why would you take probiotics? Because you're kind of adding bacteria when you already have this overgrowth. And that's pretty much the prevailing uh, view. Um, and probiotics are not a panacea. I really think the most important thing is to really knock down these fermentable carbs. Go on either the fast track diet, which quantitatively limits these five types of carbs, or go low carb, or go keto, or go carnivore to get things under control. That's the more important and and uh, address the identify and address the potential underlying causes. And we can go through those if we have time, but um, that needs to be part of the solution. However, um, there are some studies that um, have shown some uh, support for using pro certain probiotics in certain situations. Um, there was a 2016 study on using bifidobacterium, uh, bifidum, I think it was, lactobacillus acidophilus, along with streptococcus probiotics in GI cancer patients that had SIBO. And that was probably the most remarkable one because even though it was in this cancer patient population, they had SIBO and SIBO was resolved in 81% of the treatment group compared with 25% in the placebo group. So, wow, you know, that's, that's, uh, that jumps out at you. Um, there was a study, 2014 study, similar strains, but instead of streptococcus, streptomophilus in SIBO on liver disease patients, 24%. Um, improvement with the probiotic group, but none in the control group. Uh, there was a 2020 study using Saccharomyces, that's a fungi, Saccharomyces boulardii, with or without the antibiotic metronidazole. And they were both around 25, 30% um, effective alone, but almost double that when you combine them. So it was almost like there's a different mechanism of supporting SIBO with this Saccharomyces versus the antibiotic. Um, and then finally, uh, 2009 study, 40 patients with diarrhea and other symptoms went on, uh, were given Bacillus clausii 
one of the firmicutes, but a, a bacillus strains can make kind of some of their own antibiotics. So it's been thought that might help. And, and sure enough, they had a 47% SIBO eradication rate. Um, even though in that study, that was a letter to the editor. So there's not so much detail on it. And then lastly, everybody tends to ask about constipation because that's one of the more challenging conditions to treat. Um, and a lot of, especially if you have high methane producing microbes, methane slows transit, it's more constipating. Uh, but there was a study on 20 patients with constipation that had high methane with um, the probiotic Lactobacillus ruteri. And they did find uh, an increase of two bowel movements a week, which for somebody that's constipated, you've got to appreciate every one, um, and also a reduction in their methane levels. So there are some studies that I think um, show some possible help for probiotics, but I just don't think they're enough alone. Yeah, um, that's very interesting. And um, can you talk a bit about, uh, you mentioned it briefly before, but colon cancer and um, you had noted some new developments with regards to gut microbe, oh, right. microbes and diet. Right, right. So, you know, to to frame that discussion, right, but we talked about those three studies that show that fiber doesn't do anything, right? Doesn't help, doesn't protect. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and also I want to kind of um, frame two sides of the study. Like what are the people that are um, more interested in plants thing versus those in animals? There's kind of two arguments for um, each of those. Um, I was that I had a note on that somewhere. Oh yeah. So the, the, first of all, there's the mainstream view of colon cancer, right? And the risk factors include, include obesity, dietary habits, alcohol, right? Okay. I'm okay with that. That makes sense to me. I think there's data to support that. And then, and then here it goes, excessive red or processed meats. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know your position, but some people might say, okay, I'll watch the processed meats, but the red meat data is pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah. And then the other one is low dietary fiber. And we already debunked that one, right? Um, there's also agreement that the microbiome is likely involved. Um, this studies on Fusobacterium nucleatum, uh, C. diff, H. pylori, and some connections with, with cancer there. Um, but on the, uh, the plant Based side, they tend to look and say, okay, well, you know, you've got to watch those meats because don't forget N nitrosamines, aldehydes, heterocyclic amines, heme iron, et cetera, i.e., meat, right? That that might be the biggest driver of colon cancer. But I think the I don't think the evidence is that great for it. On the other side of the coin, there is growing evidence that dietary carbohydrates and butyrate-producing bacteria are linked to colon cancer, both in mouse and human studies. Uh, and again, if you're interested, I don't know if you post show notes or whatever, but I'll, I'll give you some links to these studies. People can have a look at them. Yeah. Um, more importantly, there's a mechanism. There's a proposed mechanism for this, carbs leading to butyrate leading to colon cancer. Um, and it comes from Alberto Martin, a researcher up in Toronto. Um, we know that keto or animal-based diets lower butyrate, while plant-based diets promote more butyrate-producing bacteria. What Martin found, and, and he did, he was started out looking 
at this mouse model. It's a mismatch repair deficient mice. Um, and so it's a mouse model and, and they're genetically compromised in, in their ability to repair mutations, right? That can lead to colon cancer. However, the same mutation in those mice is present in 20% of human colon cancers. So there's some relevance there. What he found was interesting because these, these mice on a regular high carb diet, they, their, their colon just fills up with tumors, but he could mitigate that with antibiotics knock down the bacteria or keto, both of those would ablate the effect, literally knock it right down. And also notice that it worked by reducing these firmicutes, right? We've talked about firmicutes over Bactrodides and these firmicutes are major butyrate producers. And then further, he showed that just butyrate itself drove tumor formation. Um, and there's another study, by the way, just published in Nature last year, 2021, again, talking about butyrate production and colorectal cancer. But in this case, flagging a specific organism called Porphyromonas gingivalis. And I don't know if that's familiar or not, but that also has been uh, linked to Alzheimer's and dementia with P. gingivalis periodontal disease. You get this bacteria, this anaerobic bacteria down in your gum. Um, so they're saying that this, uh, they believe this porphyromonas species invades colorectal cancer tissues, increasing uh, butyrate and inflammation. And also they were able to ablate the effect in mice when they uh, damaged the butyrate genes, the genes the bacteria need to make the butyrate. So, and they made a strong statement in that study. They said, our data revealed the aberrant increase of these butyrate producing bacteria in the colon is likely to be causally involved in colorectal cancer. So that's, I think, another reason I started to think about, okay, so why are people saying fiber is protective if all of this fermentation seems to be driving it, right? And sure enough, those three studies we talked about, really, there is no protective effect of um, fiber for colorectal cancer. Yeah, it's interesting how a lot of these assumptions and um, sort of common wisdom with regards to gut health and, and um, things like fiber just kind of fall apart when you dig a couple layers deeper. Yeah, we have to, we have to just keep looking at the new studies and, and question the things we're saying and we're thinking as well. Just keep, keep looking at it because yeah. we, we know we'll always learn more. Yeah, absolutely. And um, how about fasting? Um, you mentioned this a little bit before mm. we hit record, um, but how, how has that um, affect the gut and, and what does that do for our gut health? Mm. Yeah, well, it's the ultimate elimination diet, right? <laughs> yeah. It's the ultimate uh, uh, low carb, or low fermentation diet as well, because you're basically eating nothing. And of course, your, your gut mucins, this, this mucus in your gut, uh, will keep feeding your microbes. Um, but you know, how long can you go? I think it does depend to some extent on your fat stores. Uh, you know, and a lot of the information I have is from watching uh, lectures from Jason Fong and reading the obesity code. I haven't read the diabetes code yet, but um, he really opened my eyes to some things. Uh, I was interested in fasting from a digestive health standpoint, you know, because a lot of people that I work with, they're addicted to food and carbohydrates. And, and that's driving a lot of the symptoms and they do find it hard to kind of ratchet those down. 
Um, but I do think fasting is something to look at. Um, my one of my challenges, and and I've tried uh, fasting myself. Um, I've fasted. I think I'm up to about three days. Um, the one thing I don't like about fasting is I can't drink whiskey at night. But besides that, <laughs> I stuck it out for three days. <laughs> my my challenge with fasting, and by the way, I was surprised that, and I think he's correct that hunger is actually one of the least fear problems. Hunger, hunger is a, a feeling that, that that comes up, but that it goes away pretty quickly if you just do something else. So hunger wasn't a giant issue. Um, refeeding was a little bit of a problem for me after not, and, and I have that background of being susceptible to kind of reflux and IBS type symptoms, um, which is, you know, completely controlled on a, on a low carb diet. But um, I found after three days, I was like, okay, where's the food? I'm ready to go. You know, and I wouldn't, I, I wasn't following as carefully as he recommended in the book, you know, a little, a little broth to break the fast slowly. I was diving in a little too much and I would get really soft stools of diarrhea. So I think the refeeding part is one that I'd want to work on a little bit more and with my my clients as well, if and when I recommend prolonged fasting. Um, there's not that much known, uh, to me at least, in terms of fasting and, and the microbiome. Um, there was an interesting study done, oh, it had to be six years ago or so, by uh, Marlene Riemley. Uh, excellent researcher in Austria. And she put people, she fasted people um, for a week and then looked at their microbiome before and after. And what she found was uh, an increase in diversity, an increase in diversity of gut lining associated bacteria. And, and those are believed to be the ones that are kind of more important, right? We talked about some of the mucin feeders like Acomensumus inophila, Fecalibacterium prausnitzii, um, Bacteroides theta iota, iota omicron, and maybe Bacteroides fragilis. I'm not sure if she included those two in her analysis, but in general, the mucus associated, the gut lining associated microorganisms that are very important. Um, the diversity of those increased, which makes a little sense that those would be the most survivable, that they wouldn't go down because they're, they're the ones that can feed on the mucus and, and they cross feed the other microbes. Um, so in, in that one instance, you, yeah, you could say fasting increased uh, diversity of at least some, some groups of the microbes. So um, I don't know of a lot more studies um, on that topic, or maybe they're just not coming to mind at the moment, but certainly a fascinating field. Um, I was amazed reading, reading Jason's book that, I mean, some, uh, one person fasted for over 300 days. Uh, so if, as long as you've got the, uh, the fat, you can keep going, I guess. It's a complete fuel source. Yeah. Complete yeah. with vitamins and minerals. I think a lot of the people in like, there's a study in 64 in LA where people fasted not that long, but up to, I think, over 100 days. And some of those, I don't even think they were supplementing. So there must be a, a complete food source, including vitamins and minerals in your fat. Or yeah. the body somehow conserves them. Interesting. Um, 
And you, you had mentioned it earlier, and I think you, you've hinted at it throughout this interview, but um, what are some of the underlying causes or reasons for people developing things like SIBO and IBS? Hmm. Yeah, right. Let, let's talk about those. And, um, you know, by the way, SIBO gets all the press lately, um, but there are other forms of dysbiosis. And then, and also before we, I'm, I'm going to talk about these underlying causes, but before we get that, just to, for your listeners, um, you know, we talked about complex microbes, 100 trillion, 11 phyla. Well, what are those phyla? Let's just put them out there for the record. Firmicutes, Bactrodides, we talked about how important those are, 90% of your microbes, but also actinobacteria, right? There's your bifidobacteria, proteobacteria, like E. coli, Klebsiella, sulfate-reducing bacteria, they're proteobacteria, eukaryota. That's the methane producers like uh, Methanobrevibacter smithii. Verrucomicrobia, that was the Akamensa mucinophila we talked about that lives on the gut lining, feeds on, on the mucus, right? Mucinophila. Fusobacterium, um, we all have them. It, it, there's also genus and species of fusobacteria that have been linked, as we discussed, to colon cancer. We have some cyanobacteria, the blue-green bacteria. Um, some people call them blue-green algae. And then fungi, protozoa. And, and viruses. So there's a whole bunch of different kind of guys down there, right? Um, and then the types of dysbiosis, we talked about SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There's also CIFO, small intestinal fungal overgrowth, IMO, intestinal methanogen overgrowth, and what I loosely call LIBO for large intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There's a couple of good studies of overgrowth of bacteria in the early large bowel. So all of these things can lead to these um, you know, uh, symptoms, functional GI issues, and they're all a form of dysbiosis. Um, and so there's tons of symptoms, gas, bloating, distension, flatulence, abdominal pain, cramps, reflux, diarrhea, nausea, dehydration, fatigue, brain fog, and skin conditions, and, and more, and then constipation with these methanogens. So, so yeah, what's, what's driving this? You know, what are some of these underlying causes? Um, well, there, there are a lot of them. Here's some of the, that come up often, perhaps more prevalent, um, pancreatic insufficiency. Uh, by the way, some of these things you can measure in a comprehensive stool test. Pancreatic insufficiency, you're not making enough enzymes, either lipase, amylase, um, protease. Uh, you can have problems from taking antibiotics in particular, right, for obvious reasons, but other drugs as well, even acid-reducing proton pump inhibitors. You can have bile issues. We talked a little bit about that. You need it to digest fat. It also is antimicrobial. Um, however, you can have damage to the bile from bacteria, deconjugated. You can have poor reabsorption. You can have too much, too little. Um, the bile acid malabsorption we talked about. Uh, another one is Anything that damages the brush border, all these little villi and microvilla, right? That's the surface area where absorption takes place, the final breakdown of things like starches um, and sugars so that these nutrients can be absorbed into the bloodstream, as well as proteins to amino acids, fats to fatty acids. Um, anything that damages that brush border, because don't forget, little enzymes stick out of the tips of the microvilli. They're called disaccharidases. Those are our brush border enzymes, and they're kind of fragile. And they can get damaged by the proteases from SIBO bacteria, for instance, or other things. So anything that damages the brush border, 
um, anything that impacts motility, right? How things move through your digestive tract. And we know that uh, gastrointestinal infections can be a, a huge problem there. Uh, and these even some mechanisms for that. Um, medications, especially pain meds and narcotics can really slow down altered motility. Um, Hashimoto's or thyroid issues, low stomach acid. Um, what else for motility? You know, th there's lots of things. Oh, methane levels, right? These methanogens. Um, also, uh, scleroderma, any kind of adhesions or scarring in the intestines that will really mess up your motility. And then lastly, I, I throw one in that nobody really talks about. I think there might be something to be said for just consuming more carbohydrates and more fermentable carbohydrates than your body at that point in time, whether it's your age or some issues you've had, that you're consuming more carbs than your body can digest and absorb. And thus, you're overfeeding these microbes. And low fermentable carb diets, I know I'm repeating this, but keto diets, carnivore diets, what do they have in common? They put our microbes on a diet. Not necessarily us, that's true too, but they put our microbes on a diet. Same with the um, uh, elemental diet, because not many fermentable, not much fermentable material is being fed to these guys. And it allows our control mechanisms. Yeah, things like stomach acid, digestive enzymes, bile, secreted immunoglobulin A, right? IgA and our gut, motility and so forth to better modulate these populations. I'm, I'm really sure about that. Um, there's a reason that if you look at all of the therapeutic diets for these functional GI issues, they literally, every one of them, somehow limits fermentable carbohydrates. The low FODMAP diet is another example. And uh, I'd love Dr. Norm to touch on the fast track diet. What is that and what is the rationale behind it? Yeah. So I told you a little bit about my story, right? That initially I, I came to this conclusion that, that, wow, these carbs are killing me and they're driving my, my reflux. And, and, and uh, I also was having some respiratory issues, some IBS issues, and that straightened them out. So that could have been it. Call it a day, go low carb. Um, but I was... I was hanging out with this guy, uh, Dr. Mike Eads at the time, the guy, he and his wife uh, wrote Protein Power, Mary Dan Eads. And he had written about GERD and low carb. And so I had sent my book to him and, and we got together with him. And he was very supportive of this idea about why, you know, this mechanism of carbohydrate malabsorption, gas and reflux. So he was, he was helpful to me as a, a new kind of author starting out. Uh, but he asked me a really important question way back when. This was 2005 or six. He said, um, which carbs are worse? <laughs> like, um, wow, never really thought about that. Which carbs are worse? <laughs> and so it was easy to get that list together. Lactose, fructose, resistant starch, uh, fiber, and sugar alcohols. And certain oligo oligosaccharides of fructose and galactose. Uh, those are the ones that are hard to digest and fermentable. That was the easy part. It took me two more years to come up with the fast track diet idea because I didn't have any way to turn that list into a diet. You know, what, what will people do if you say, stop eating these five types of carbs? The, you know, just go yeah. low carb maybe because it's too hard to figure out. Yeah, many, they won't know what. Many, yeah. <laughs> 
how many carbs are in this piece of pita bread or this apple? Um, so I needed a way to, to make it quantitative and easy for people to understand a point system. And, and I kept coming back to this idea of the glycemic index. And I kept thinking that does measure how quickly carbohydrates go into the bloodstream for any food. There must be some way to kind of turn it around. And it would pop into my mind from time to time. And finally, I came up with a way to rearrange the glycemic index equation. So instead of measuring how quickly carbs were going into the bloodstream for any food, it would measure um, how many carbohydrates were staying behind. And that's why I called that FP, fermentation potential. And it's a, it's a rearrangement of the glycemic index equation. So, um, yeah, and that's, we use that in, in the book and some tables in back both books is one on Hopper and one on IBS, the fast track digestion books. But more importantly, it's a tool in the fast track diet mobile app. Um, so we list some 1200 foods. And so when you add those to your meals and so forth, it will calculate those points for you. You just put in your serving size. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was painful. Maybe, maybe it seems obvious after I came up with it, but from nothing to, to finding a way to quantitate them, uh, these types of carbs was, you know, it broke my brain for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, Dr. Norm, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned a lot from you. I'm going to be re-listening to this. I'm sure the listeners have enjoyed it as well. Um, where can folks find out more about you? And I'll have links to everything in the show notes. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks, Scott, for having me on the show. Um, people can find me uh, on digestivehealthinstitute.org. Uh, they can buy the books. They can find the uh, links to the app, which are, of course, are on, on um, Google and, and the um, iPhone store. Uh, they can contact me through the website to, for individual consultation. Uh, they can also um, go to our YouTube channel. We've been, we've been building out a YouTube channel. In fact, we have um, a 30-minute video, comprehensive video on SIBO coming out this week. Um, the YouTube, cha YouTube channel is Fast Tracked Diet, T-R-A-C-T, Diet. And we've got some on, uh, oh, a number of other things, uh, laryngopharyngeal reflux. Um, it's a, it's a version of acid reflux that, that is, uh, and stumping a lot of people. So, uh, yeah, they can go there. And then also for a discussion for, for help with other people that are on the fast track diet, they can go to the fast track diet official Facebook group. Excellent. I'll have links to all of those. And thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Norm. Thank you, Scott. Excellent. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the Carnivore Cast on Patreon. By becoming a patron, you'll help us reach more people and continue to create content on Carnivore. There are also exclusive perks available, such as private Q&As, consultations with me, and more. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash carnivorecast. Check the episode description for the link. Thank you, and I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carnivore Cast. If you enjoyed this episode, please review on iTunes. It really helps us out and share it with a friend. What questions would you like answered or who would you like to hear from in the carnivore research community? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at carnivorecast or go to carnivorecast.com. You can also email me at info at carnivorecast.com. 
I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep it carnivore.